Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on taking in the Word this morning, get our minds off of the last week and activities this afternoon or next week and focus on the Word. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather together this morning to study your word, that it is your word that illuminates our thinking as to the absolute truth that runs the universe, and it's your word that teaches us about your grace and salvation and your grace in the spiritual life. Father, we thank you for the freedoms we have in this nation, freedoms to gather together to worship without government interference. Thank you for all of the other freedoms which we have, and we pray that you would Continue to bless us with these freedoms and continue to uh, protect this nation. We pray that you would give our leaders wisdom, give security forces uh, wisdom and insight as they protect us during this war against terrorism. Father, we continue to pray that you would challenge us with your word, that we might not be complacent, but that we might understand that the challenge before us as believers is not simply to be glad that we are saved, but to press on to spiritual maturity. Toward that end, we spend time each week studying your word, that the Holy Spirit might use it to strengthen us and mature us and build us up in our spiritual life. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to continue with our study now in 1 Corinthians 3. We have spent the last several weeks focusing on an understanding of this particular passage where we are informed that the believer, each individual believer, is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, we're told that each individual believer is a temple of God. We saw that, that what that means... Uh, is that the Holy Spirit has created in us a temple. That temple is for the uh, indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the Old Testament uh, dwelt in the temple of Israel and was manifest there in an overt way as the Shekinah glory. In a similar manner, the God the Son indwells every believer and manifests His glory through the believer. And that glory is not an overt glory of brilliance, 
a physical manifestation of a display of light as it was in the Old Testament, but it's displayed through the character of Christ that is produced in the believer through God the Holy Spirit. And so we advance from glory to glory, we're told, in Second Corinthians. And that manifestation of glory is not like the manifestation that uh, Jesus displayed to uh, John and James and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a brilliant uh, display of his, glory, of his physical glory as a blinding light, a white raiment. But it was a, the display that John speaks more openly about in the Gospel of John, where it was a display of his character through his uh, deeds and through his ministry. As we come back to our passage in 3.16, we need to lock down the context again. And in order to do that, we need to review the basic doctrine of spirituality as it is revealed in the Scriptures. The basic problem in Corinth is one of division. That's the one that Paul is addressing in these first four chapters. And so what he says in chapter 3 cannot be divorced from that general context. In fact, before we finish the chapter, he will bring us right back to show how the things that he has said regarding the, the spiritual life, the things that he has said regarding the uh, judgment seat of Christ, the things that he is saying about being a temple of God, the Holy Spirit, all directly relate to the interpersonal problems in Corinth. See, we live in an era when, for some reason, people have gotten the idea that doctrine is some sort of abstract theology that's nice and fun and perhaps intellectually stimulating for uh, some people, but it really is somehow divorced from life. And too often you hear people say, well, we want practical studies. We want uh, practical information. We want to learn about marriage. We want to learn about uh, handling finances, and we want to learn about all these day-to-day issues. And what people don't understand is that that's an extremely shallow and superficial approach to problem-solving and to living life. As the Apostle Paul addresses these problems in Corinth, which include all of the things I just mentioned, rather than starting off with the problem itself and addressing it in some sort of uh, detail, he starts with who and what the believer is in Jesus Christ. Because if you don't understand that, it doesn't matter what else you do in terms of of, uh, particular tactics for problem-solving in life, if it's not based on your uh, spiritual wealth in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the spiritual assets that were given at the instant of salvation, then it's probably just the work of the flesh, and it's not going to count for anything. You may alleviate some pressure at the moment, but in terms of real long-term solutions and in terms of anything that has significance for eternity, it it's probably is irrelevant. So we need to think about spirituality because that's the basic issue in Corinthians is that the carnal Corinthians did not understand who and what they were in Christ. If you don't understand what you've been given at the point of salvation and that that is the potential for everything in the spiritual life, then you will not grow spiritually because you lack the basic information uh, that's necessary. Furthermore, they were so caught up with uh, all of the ideas that they had picked up as unbelievers, all of the various ideas and approaches to life that were dominant in Corinth. And remember, Corinth was a uh, multicultural city. It was a port town, so there were folks there from Rome. There were sailors who would come in on various merchant vessels who had retired to stay in, in Corinth. There was a large Jewish community. There were They were just south of the 
uh, Isthmus of Corinth, just north of which was the uh, Oracle of Delphi. The culture, the Greek culture, was dominated on the one hand by Greek philosophical systems, which tended towards uh, rationalism and empiricism, tended to uh, idolize various key leaders and thinkers just on the basis of their own talent and their own intellectual skills. And on the other hand, there was a strong influence from the uh, mystery cults. They were various forms of, of uh, fertility worship. There's the worship of Apollo, the worship of Dionysius, and uh, various other mystery cults were present in Corinth, so they brought those kinds of ideas with them when they became believers, and too often what they were trying to do was interpret the Christian life on the basis of these cultural concepts rather than learning doctrine and then challenging their cultural values on the basis of doctrine. And that's the same problem we have today is that people are saved out of all kinds of contexts. Some of you come from religious backgrounds where you were brought up in a denomination where there was a heavy emphasis on ritual. Others of you come out of a background where there was no religion whatsoever and you had no clue what the Bible was or who Jesus Christ was or anything else until perhaps you were an adult. Others of you come from various other backgrounds and we all come from some frame of reference that's based on human viewpoint, and we bring that to the Scriptures. And our job as believers is to exchange the human viewpoint in our souls for the divine viewpoint in Scripture. You know, I come to the views that I have not because that was necessarily instilled in me when I was young, although a lot of it was, but there are many ideas, many concepts that I did not learn until I went to seminary, later became a pastor and really got into the Word and began to uh, probe and develop and fully understand many of these things for myself. They're not my ideas because that's my opinion and I'm using the Word of God to justify those things, but that that's what the Word of God says. So the problem we face in our world today is not unlike that of the Corinthians, and that is that people want to judge the Bible on the basis of their experience and their frame of reference rather than judging their own experience and frame of reference by the Bible. So let's just get a brief review of the doctrine of spirituality. Point number one, salvation is based on a right relationship with Jesus Christ, but spirituality is based on a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Salvation is based on a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The issue at salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue at salvation is understanding that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he became flesh, was incarnate at the virgin conception, at the virgin birth, and that he was not only undiminished deity, but was also true humanity, and they were united together in one person, that his purpose for coming to earth was to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute. We need to recognize that we are sinners and that there's nothing we can do to gain God's favor, nothing we can do to impress God, nothing we can do to make ourselves savable, nothing we can do to uh, merit anything that Christ has done. Uh, all we can do is trust in him. So the issue of salvation is Jesus Christ, but in the spiritual life, the issue is the Holy Spirit. Are we in fellowship with God and filled with the Holy Spirit? Point number two, salvation supplies the positional realities that form the potential for spiritual growth. 
Salvation supplies the positional realities that form the potential for spiritual growth. So we develop our chart where we see that at salvation we trust in Christ as our Savior. On the one hand, there are eternal realities. Can you see that for some reason? I lost the color on those top slides. We have our eternal realities, and on the other hand, we have our temporal realities. Our yeah, That's showing up okay. It's a little... I tried a different color this morning and shows up okay on the computer, but it's a little uh, faded out there. We have a circle to describe our relationship with Christ, and at the instant of salvation, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and placed in Christ. At that moment, we are given 39 irrevocable assets. These cannot, do not change. They are eternal realities. They are non-experiential. You don't know you have them until you get into the Word of God and the Scripture tells you that these things happened. For example, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is not experiential. It's not evidenced by speaking in tongues. It's not evidenced by any kind of ecstatic experience. It's not evidenced by a living a higher, deeper, more victorious Christian life. All of these ideas are part of false spirituality systems that have become very popular in our country. The baptism by the Holy Spirit has to do with identification. We are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that his death to sin is our death to sin and his resurrection to new life is our resurrection to new life in regeneration. Regeneration is also one of the eternal realities that takes place at salvation. But there is also our day-to-day experience, which has to do with our walk with the Lord in time. We are filled by the Holy Spirit as long as we are in fellowship. But the temporal realities are based on the positional realities that we get at the instant of salvation. So at salvation, point number three, at salvation we are the recipients of seven salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit. Seven salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit. First is efficacious grace where God the Holy Spirit takes our faith and makes it effective for salvation. Each one of us as an unbeliever can't do anything to uh, impress God, can't do anything that has value before God. Faith itself is non-meritorious. But God the Holy Spirit takes the faith of an undeserving, unregenerate human being and makes that effective for salvation. It's all the work of God. It doesn't have anything to do with who we are or what we do. Secondly, we are regenerated. Third, we are baptized by God the Holy Spirit. Third, we are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, fourth, we, are, we receive spiritual gifts. Sixth, uh, fourth, fifth, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Sixth, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. There are six salvation ministries. I think I said seven, but there are six. We're filled by the Holy Spirit, but we lose that. That's the one thing that we can lose, and we lose that as soon as we sin. When we're filled by the Spirit, we are in fellowship with God, but God is a righteous God and cannot have fellowship with anyone who is a sinner. So when we sin, we are out of fellowship, and we are, the Scripture says, walking in darkness in a status of carnality, controlled by the sin nature, and it's only by confessing our sins uh, using 1 John 1, 9 that we are restored to fellowship. Six salvation ministries, again, are efficacious grace, regeneration, baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, sealing by the Spirit, receiving spiritual gifts, and we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Fourth, 
we have to recognize that spirituality is an absolute. It is not the concept of growth. It's not a relative concept. It doesn't have anything to do with maturity. It has to do with our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. When we are inside the right circle here, filled by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, we are spiritual. We are living in light of our spiritual birth and on the basis of who and what we are in Christ. So spirituality then is an absolute, and it is not based on how you feel. It's not emotional, not ecstatic. Point number five, failure in the spiritual life leads to carnality and produces human good or dead works. What Paul defines or calls wood, hay, and straw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. When we're in carnality, we produce human good or dead works. Now, that it may look the same as divine good. We can help somebody. We can give to the church. We can pray. We can witness. We can read our Bible. We can be engaged in ritual. You can uh, get baptized. You can go, go to the Lord's table. You can sit in Bible class and take notes. You can do all of those things in the status of carnality, and it's human good, and it's dead works. You can be involved in all kinds of altruistic uh, endeavors. You can get involved in various charity. You can get involved in community work, and you can do all that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and it's divine good. The issue is not what the activity is. The issue is whether or not you are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. So when we are out of the, out of the right circle there and we're out of fellowship and in carnality, then we produce human good or dead works. When we are in fellowship, walking by the Spirit and, invite, and abiding in Christ, we are advancing. This is point number six. When we are in fellowship, walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ, we are advancing spiritually, producing divine good, which Paul calls gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians 3.12, and we will be rewarded on the basis of that divine good. Point number seven, the results of spirituality are many. I'm just going to list a few, but we have to understand that these are the results of spirituality. Ninety-nine percent of the Christians that you know probably think if you do these things, you will become spiritual, and that's really spirituality by works. The system that we understand is a spirituality by grace, that as we walk by the Holy Spirit, taking his word that it is the Holy Spirit who produces growth in us, and that these are the consequence of that. First of all, there's witnessing in Acts 1.8. We witness. Witnessing, you'll find in some false systems of spirituality, they'll, they, you get into some churches and you get involved in some kind of a, an evangelism program and the emphasis there is if you don't do this you're not spiritual and so that usually you have people going out and getting involved in door-to-door evangelism or some other method of evangelism and many of these techniques are helpful but they become rigid and legalistic and they become uh, means for spirituality but witnessing is the result of being filled with the spirit if it's going to have any any real value it can even be effective if you're carnal isn't that amazing See, God honors his word. You can be just as carnal and out of fellowship as you can be and give somebody the gospel 
and they can get saved, and guess what? It's just human good on your part, and it doesn't count for anything. Now, they're saved, and that counts for something, but it doesn't count for anything for you. Giving is also a result of spirituality. Giving is not a means of grace or a means of becoming spiritual. Worship. And Ephesians 5:19 through 20 is a consequence of spirituality. That's an interesting passage because if you look at it, look at the passage, in Ephesians 5:18, we're commanded to be filled by means of the Spirit. The consequences of that are then enumerated or listed in Ephesians 19 and following is giving thanks to God for all things and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that singing is a consequence of spirituality. Singing hymns to God is part of worship. It's not just something that's tacked onto a church because it's something that traditional churches do, but it is, as the Scripture teaches, part of spirituality and a consequence of spirituality. Service, ministry to one another. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, we discover that the gift of pastor-teacher is designed to equip the saints, that is, every believer, equip the saints to do the work of ministry, that is, to uh, be involved in utilizing their spiritual gifts toward one another. Prayer is also a result of spirituality. Ephesians 6.18, prayer is a result of spirituality. You don't pray to become spiritual. Prayer, Your prayer life will deepen and become stronger as a result of your spiritual advance. Divine guidance is a result of spirituality. Romans 8:14. All of these are the consequences of spirituality. Now, Paul has made it clear at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 that the problem in the Corinthian church and the divisions that are there is a consequence of their walking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. And he warns them, starting in verse 9, that there are eternal consequences to their carnality. Not that they will lose salvation, not that they will end up in the lake of fire, but that when they appear at the judgment seat of Christ, if there is no gold, silver, and precious stones, then there will be no rewards, and they will suffer loss. There will be a there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ, John tells us in first John two twenty eight. So there will be loss of rewards. There will be loss of inheritance, Paul tells us in Galatians uh, 5, 17 through 19. And all of this is to inform us that the spiritual life is crucial. It's not just something nice, something optional, but it will have significant consequences during the millennium and during eternity. On the basis of that, he reminds them after going through the judgment seat of Christ in verses 9 through 15, he shifts to talking about the positional reality. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is the doctrine of the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and in his indwelling he creates a temple for the indwelling of God the Son. Now the point that he is making is that because of that positional reality, we are given a potential to live the spiritual life. God has given us everything we need to live the spiritual life. God in his omniscience knew every problem, every difficulty, every heartache, every conflict that you were ever going to face. He, he knew you inside and out. He knew your emotional problems. He knew your psychological problems. He knew your spiritual problems. He knew the strengths and weaknesses of your sin nature and knows them better than you do. 
and yet God gave you everything you need to deal with any and every problem that you face in life, whether it's a problem of your own personality or your own sin nature or whether it is an external problem or situation that you face as a result of uh, national problems such as economic disaster or military disaster or any problem that you encounter in your personal life, in, in romance or marriage, whatever it may be, uh, health, God has given us everything we need in his scripture to handle it. That's what's so remarkable. It's not based on who we are. He didn't do it because we're so wonderful. He did it because he loved us so much. It's all based on his character, and that's grace. That's what grace is all about, and most people never understand it. They're so busy operating on guilt that somehow I did something, so now God's out to get me or things aren't going well in my life, so there must be something wrong somewhere. And so then they get engaged in a lot of self-absorbed uh, thinking, and they get all caught up in trying to figure out how to improve things with God. And it's just a system of works and a system of legalism, and it is ultimately destructive to the spiritual life. And that's a problem is that most Christians and most theologians don't understand grace in and grace and the role of God the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life. But that's nothing new. Paul faced it in Galatians, and his problem with the Galatians in Galatians 3.3, 3, he said, Did you, having begun by the Spirit, are you now by, trying to be matured by the flesh, that is, by the works of the law, by morality? It wasn't, and when he's talking about maturing, maturing by the flesh, in Galatians 3.3, 3, it's not... The sin nature, flesh always refers to the sin nature. It's not the sin nature in the sense of sinful deeds, but the sin nature, remember, also produces morality. The sin nature produces human good. The sin nature produces religion, and religion is defined as that which man does in order to impress God as opposed to biblical Christianity, which emphasizes a relationship where God does all the work and man simply accepts it. So in verse 16, Paul is informing them, uh, again, of the foundation for their spiritual life. And from there, he is going to go into three hindrances to spiritual growth at the end of the chapter. Three hindrances to spiritual life. First of all, they had wrong teaching. There was doctrinal ignorance in the congregation. That's why he asked the question, do you not know this? And the implication is, no, they don't know it because they're ignorant doctrinally, even though they have good teachers. Peter has been there, Apollos has been there, and Paul has been there. They have had good pastors. They have had excellent pastors, excellent doctrinal teaching, and yet they apparently were negative and they didn't understand it, they didn't apply it, and they didn't exchange the human viewpoint in their souls for divine viewpoint. It wasn't the fault of the pastors. It's their responsibility, and they have stayed ignorant despite the fact that they have been taught differently. So that's the first hindrance to spiritual growth is wrong teaching or doctrinal ignorance, and unfortunately that characterizes the evangelical church of 21st century America. Uh, it is a, it's, uh, The horror stories I could tell you, I'm not going to bore you with them this morning, but the horror stories I could tell you as I go out and travel and see what is being taught in some places under the guise of Christianity, turn on, we don't get it so much here in southeastern Connecticut, for which I'm grateful, but in most place, most major television markets, you can turn on a number of different uh, 
Christian television programs, or you might go someplace like uh, uh, Houston or New York or Los Angeles, and you might have as many as 10 or 15 Christian radio stations, and you would just be amazed at the kind of stuff that is taught in those um, in those markets. In fact, I had a call from somebody in Kansas City the other day, and he had just heard um, a Christian psychologist, nationally known, talking about how uh, wonderful it was that we've discovered all these new uh, psychotropic drugs, such as Zoloft and Prozac and all of these other things. There was a whole uh, panel of Christian psychologists, and how wonderful it was that we had these things so that people could get, help them get past all of their problems. It seems to me that what that's really saying is that, that no Christian could really get past their problems or experience a Christian life until they invented these drugs. So we can just uh, thank God we've got a modern pharmaceutical industry, and poor Paul, he just didn't know about that. But the Scriptures are clear. And I think that we have to be careful when it comes to these modern medications. I think the jury is out. There's a a number of um, books that are out. There's been some debate. I think there was an issue in Newsweek this last year where there was a debate uh, going on in the medical community as to whether there was any real long-term value to these drugs or if there were long-term dangers in these drugs. And there are many doctors, many in the medical community, who believe that even though you may get some short-term benefits and it may calm you down and tranquilize you for a while, and it's amazing how many Americans have had to be tranquilized since 9-11 in order to make it through life, but uh, they're, they're, they're saying that while there may be some temporary short-term benefits to these drugs, the long-term consequences appear that they rewire the brain so that eventually you're not going to be able to live off of those drugs. You get on some of these drugs, and and they will create a dependence or rewire your brain so that you won't be able to ever get off of them. You won't be able to operate independently of them. And I'm amazed how many Christians I run into who make comments like, well, it's so much easier to live the Christian life now that I've got Zoloft or Prozac or whatever the latest drug is. See, it's become a crutch. It's a substitute for, the, for spirituality and a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Says Christian life is not easy. It's not easy to go through situations where, and we all go through them at times, where we are emotionally in emotional turmoil or the circumstances around us are very unstable and unsettling, and it's very difficult at those times to apply doctrine. But that's how we grow. We grow in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And sometimes, in fact, I had a conversation with someone recently and uh, reminded me of a friend of mine in Houston one time telling me that, that uh, uh, about a situation in her life. She said, you know, it just seemed like every five or six seconds I had to confess my sin of worry again. And it seemed like I didn't get anything done for about three days other than just confess a sin of worry. Well, see, sometimes that's what the Christian's life is like. It just seems absolutely overwhelming because every two or three seconds we're back trying to handle everything on our own and we're worrying about it or we're getting angry or we're succumbing to bitterness or some sort of reaction in our own soul and you just have to confess it and confess
confess it and confess it and confess it and confess it. It's sort of like when, uh, for you guys who are in the military, when you were going through basic training, it seemed like you couldn't get it right and your drill sergeant had you knocking out 20 push-ups every two minutes. Well, eventually you got past that and eventually you got to a point where you could go forward. But that same kind of thing happens in the Christian life. It's not always easy and it's not always living on some sort of, having some sort of mountaintop uh, experience. Sometimes you're just in the trenches with your own sin nature doing battle with the Holy Spirit using promises again and again and again and again. And so you don't, uh, for people especially whose sin nature is prone towards uh, depression, if they have given themselves over to that without applying doctrine for years, then it's going to be a wonderful thing for them to find some drug where they don't have to battle depression anymore. But the problem is not the depression. The problem is they haven't been dealing with the sin and their sin nature for years. And the only real recovery is going to be based on doctrine. Now, we have a... So the first problem here is wrong teaching or doctrinal ignorance. Second problem is wrong thinking or human viewpoint. And we could use the same illustration. We live in a psychologized therapeutic culture that couches every problem in psychological verbiage. And there's so much psychobabble that we've all picked up over the years, we don't realize that that terminology itself just just brings the brings to the problem all of the baggage of human viewpoint. So we, too, deal with the problem of human viewpoint thinking. And then third, we have a wrong perspective. Wrong perspective, and that is a failure to understand grace and to have grace orientation. So Paul addresses these things in this section. Now, in verse 17, we read, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So now he's going to make application. Verse 16, he teaches them about the fact and reminds them that they are a temple of God, and the Holy Spirit indwells them. And then he gives the consequences, if, and this is a first-class condition. In the Greek, there are four different ways to express a hypothetical statement or an if clause. And this is the first-class condition, and it has the idea of if and it is true. So usually in English, we just have one way to do it. If any man destroys the temple of God, and we could take that to mean uh, if, and maybe they will, and maybe they won't. Well, that would be a Greek third-class condition. But this is a um, first-class condition, and it's assuming the reality of the condition that they would destroy the temple of God. So the assumption here is that there will be, and some, some translations translate it corrupt. The Greek word here is phthiro. Th- a little difficult for us in English to pronounce this diphthong looks like this in the Greek, P-H-T-H, put the first person ending there, P-H-T-H-E-I-R-O, Pathiro. And that means to corrupt, it means to destroy, it means to harm, and it can even mean to judge or condemn. And this is what we find in this passage. It's used twice, and it's used with different meanings. The first sense is if any man corrupts the temple of God. And what we will see in the subsequent verses is just some of the ways that the Corinthians were corrupting their own temple. 
Now, usually, because 1 Corinthians 6.19 informs us that the body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, you'll usually find preachers to take off on uh, some sort of anti-smoking message, anti-drinking message, or the, some sort of message that, that uh, deals with the fact that, that if you're just not following a path of health for your body, then, um, then you're corrupting the temple of God, which is your body. That's not the point here. You know, it's always ama- has been amazing to me that the people who have all of these sermons against uh, alcohol and against smoking never mention overeating. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen obese pastors pontificate on the evils of drink, and they never talk about gluttony. The focus here is not on the physical body. It is on the fact that what is being corrupted is the temple of God, which is immaterial. It's what's created in the soul, and it is done through sin and carnality, as we'll see in the following verses. So Paul says, if any man corrupts the temple of God, God will destroy him. And this is the same word again, but it has a slightly different meaning. God is not going to destroy him in terms of eternal condemnation, but we have to understand it in context, and that is the context of verse 13, that at the judgment seat of Christ, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will evaluate each one's work of what kind it is. And if anyone's work on which he is built it endures, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And this is a reference back to to suffering loss. If you as a believer are not advancing to spiritual maturity so that gold, silver, and precious stones are produced for the judgment seat of Christ then the consequence is that everything's burned up and nothing's left, and you will go through a judgment at the judgment seat of Christ that will bring about shame, as John mentions it in 1 John 2.28. And the reason is then given in that last statement, Paul reiterates the principle using the Greek particle gar, which is an explanatory particle. He explains once again for the dense Corinthians, that they are the temple of God, for the temple of God is holy. And once again, we have the Greek word used here, naos. This is very important to understand this. There are two words in Greek for temple. The first word is the word naos, N-A-O-S, and the second is Hieros, H-I-E-R-O-S. Now, naos refers to the inner holy of holies and the inner sanctum, whereas heros would refer to the entire temple precinct. So what we're focusing on here is that inner temple, that inner holy place, which is where the dwelling of God is. So Paul explains that because the temple of God is holy, because it is set apart, and every believer at the instant of salvation is positionally holy and set apart to the service of God. Because the temple of God is holy, you're set apart as a temple to God for a purpose. He says, and that is what you are. So if you are corrupting the temple, that means you are uh, destroying God's purpose and plan for your life. You are in conflict with God, and the result of that is going to be uh, both 
temporal divine discipline as well as loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this runs just counter to a lot of antinomian thinking, and unfortunately, in grace-oriented churches, there's too many people who pick up a sort of antinomian idea that once I'm saved, I'm saved. It doesn't matter what sin I commit as long as I confess it. Everything's just going to be, be okay. In fact, there are some that, to quote John, they went out from us, but they were not of us who have gotten to the point where they're teaching you don't even need to confess your sins. It's all forgiven at the cross. So, you know, anybody who emphasizes all those imperatives in the Bible, well, they're just legalists. So you don't have to pray. You don't have to do anything. Well, it's a wonder. no wonder the congregations are shrinking. You know, nobody has to even learn doctrine anymore. That's just legalism. But they don't recognize that, so uh, it's just interesting to watch them self-destruct. There are obligations, as we will see in this passage, there are obligations in the spiritual life because of what, who and what Christ is and what he has done for us. It's not to get salvation or to get sanctification or to get blessing, but they are simply the responsibilities that are inherent with the reception of any uh, gift or any responsibility. Verse 18 we read the problem, we discover the problem of arrogance and wrong thinking. The problem in the 16 and 17 is they were ignorant of the teaching of, about being a temple of God. And beginning in verse 18, we see the problem of wrong thinking or human viewpoint from self-deception. Verse 18, Paul states, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish, that he may become wise. Now, the command in verse 18 is a present active imperative, and that is going to be contrasted a little later on with a, an aorist active imperative. Now, the thrust of a present active imperative is that this is something that should characterize a believer's life day in and day out, standard operating procedure. Don't get involved in self-deception. This is part of arrogance. There are four arrogant skills that form a cycle and feed off of each other. They begin with self-absorption. As soon as you begin thinking about yourself, focusing on yourself, and it's your ideas are not God, God's ideas, your needs are not God's needs, your truth are not God's truth, as soon as you begin to focus on your emotions, on how you feel, on uh, your own situation, your own problems, then what happens usually is you go right into the second stage, which is self-indulgence. And you always see people who start getting focused on all their problems, wallowing in self-pity, and now they're just indulging themselves in all of their self-pity. Self-indulgence leads to self-justification as they begin to justify their behavior. It's not really my fault that all these things have happened, and they begin to justify their behavior. Somehow God's at fault, and then they get into uh, self-deception. What happens in self-deception is you become divorced from reality. You're no longer thinking according to doctrine and according to truth, but you're thinking according to the lie. And as soon as you have a lie in your thinking, a distortion of the way things are, then it just feeds back to self-absorption again, and you get caught up in a 
never-ending, self-destructive cycle of arrogance. And this was a key problem in Corinth. Arrogance was at the core of all of their sins. See, arrogance is a mental attitude sin, and it doesn't matter whether the, what the overt sin is. Usually at its core, you find arrogance, but nobody ever wants to talk about arrogance. They have a lot more fun just talking about sexual sins or some sin of perversion or some other overt sin, sin of the tongue that applies to somebody else, but certainly not to me. So we always think that if somebody's engaged in some sort of whatever we think is a horrible, heinous sin that culturally is uh, is rejected, and right now, of course, everybody's uh, upset about, and, and rightly so, about child abuse and pedophilia, but these things are suddenly become blown way out of proportion, and we look at somebody who may be engaged in these activities and we say, well, how can they be saved? Well, what about the pastor or the minister or the missionary who is operating on... Uh, uh, some sort of approbation lust, and they're operating on arrogance and incarnality their whole life because they don't understand anything about 1 John 1, 9, and yet they leave, live a very moral life. So the problem is we don't understand what spirituality is, and so we get caught up in various pseudo-systems of spirituality. Now let's uh, just review a couple of, uh, of these false systems of spirituality several of which were present not only in the Corinthian congregation, but they're still dominant in human history today. Of course, the most common false system of spirituality that we're familiar with is just legalism. Legalism technically technically is the idea of using the law, or claiming that we're under the Mosaic law, using the law as a means of gaining approval with God. That's what legalism is. And usually you'll find people who say, well, we understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so the ceremonial law doesn't apply today. But certainly all of the moral law in the Mosaic law does, and many other aspects do. And this this becomes manifested, for example, with Seventh-day Adventists. It becomes manifested in this arrogant attitude that you have to worship on Saturday. They're Sabbatarians. That means that they believe that everybody else is wrong and probably going to hell because they worship on Sunday. And, you know, the the problem is that what these systems do is they come along and they bifurcate or divide the law. The Mosaic Law is one document. It includes the ceremonial law and includes the moral law. It includes the civil law for Israel includes all of the ceremonial law which taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's one document. You don't go in there and tear it in half. Scripture says Jesus was the end of the law. doesn't say Jesus was the end of half of the law. And when Jesus ended the law, it was ended, period, over and out. And even in the Old Testament, though, the law was not a basis for spiritual life or spiritual growth. It informed them of what the rituals were, but... Spiritual, but just as salvation has always been by faith alone in Christ alone and has always been based on grace, the spiritual life has always been based on grace. It's never been based on human merit. The second problem or second false system of spirituality, which is often but not always connected to the first, is a spirituality based on ritual. Spirituality based on ritual where you just go through certain rituals. You, you go to many many churches where they have more of a what is called a high form of worship, where there's a lot of liturgy, a lot of pomp and circumstance. 
and usually no Bible teaching, and you go through the certain activities week after week after week, and they become rather uh, habit-forming. They're just pro-pharma. Nobody thinks about what's going on. And the whole idea is as long as you engage in these rituals, then you're going to be uh, okay, and this is going to impress God because uh, you go to church every Sunday or you're involved in uh, uh, Mass or you're involved in some other system every week. And then at the root of all of this is really the idea that spirituality is based on morality, that spirituality is based on morality. But spirituality can't be based on anything that an unbeliever can do. And an unbeliever can be moral. In fact, many religious systems uh, and religious cults and religious groups don't have any, any uh, their participants have no clue about salvation. They have no concept about the grace of God and the payment of, for our sins at the cross. No one is saved, and yet they are extremely moral. They are very religious. They pride themselves in their morality, just as the Pharisees did at the time of Christ. But remember, Jesus said that our righteousness had to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you see, when we look at it through the lens of Scripture, we often look at the the Pharisees as the bad guys. These guys were really hypocrites, and they, they, in, in only in the sense that they didn't understand grace. Most of the Pharisees were were upright, moral men working their way to heaven. They were sound, moral individuals. And when Jesus said that the righteousness that God demanded had to exceed that of the righteousness in Pharisees, people just shook their heads and could not conceive how that could be possible because most of the Pharisees were so overtly righteous. How could we exceed that? And, of course, Jesus is pointing to the fact that it's only when we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ by imputation at salvation that we can exceed any level of human righteousness. So people confuse morality with spirituality. That doesn't mean that spirituality justifies immorality, but that spirituality goes far beyond human morality. It is a life of spiritual virtue based on the production of God the Holy Spirit. So morality is a system, a false system of spirituality. And then fifth, we have a false system of spirituality based on Christian service. This, too, is common in many evangelical churches. As soon as somebody comes through the door and decides they want to stick around for a little while, people want to get them involved in teaching Sunday school, or we want you to come into an tra- adult training class in the evening, or we want you involved in a discipleship program, some sort of cell group, and it just goes on and on. And as long as you get involved in these things or some sort of Christian service organization, that, that that's how you are spiritual, and that if you do these things, then you're spiritual, and those who don't are not spiritual. Then there's the Pentecostal crowd, and they get involved in ecstatics and emotion and mysticism, and somehow if you have certain experiences or feel a certain way, then that is evidence of your spirituality. And yet the Bible never describes spirituality in terms that are defined by emotion or ecstatics. And then you get those who get into doctrinal churches. See, we have our own problems. We get people who distort grace into thinking that uh, all you have to do to be spiritual is no doctrine. And then they learn a lot of doctrine, and they can uh, they memorize all the verbiage and all the technical terms, and, and, and they can uh, talk about all kinds of doctrinal things, but uh, they don't have a clue. 
There's no grace orientation there. I've seen situations where where I have seen parents uh, treat their children in the most, and I'm talking about more teenagers or adult children, in the harshest manner, simply because at that point in time or for a year or two, their kids are going through some sort of phase where doctrine just really doesn't seem to be that important to them. I've seen parents kick their kids out of the house and do all kinds of horrible things or just ignore them simply because they're they're not uh, listening to tapes every day or they're not going to Bible class or, or it doesn't seem to be a priority. And maybe and, and frequently this just generates even further rebellion on the part of kids. And it's all because uh, those parents never grew. They, they have some sort of system of spirituality based on uh, listening to tapes or some sort of spirituality based on having 20 doctrinal notebooks or uh, knowing all the correct terminology and being in Bible class every week and never missing. You know, that can become a form of legalism as well, and all that does is it turn kids off and it shows that parents have no concept of grace. You know, God gives us the grace to fail and to be negative and deals with us in grace, and yet we have parents who can't treat their own kids in grace when they go through difficult times. So there's all kinds of false systems of spirituality and our sin nature generates all of them, and we convince ourselves that because we're doing certain things that we're really okay. And at the core of all that is that the problem is that what we do and who we are is never the basis of either salvation or spirituality. Salvation and spirituality are both based on grace. So we have a problem with uh, wrong teaching and no doctrine, and then also Wrong thinking on based on human viewpoint, self-deception. Verse 18 goes on to say, If any man among you thinks that he is wise, and it's a first-class condition, if, and it's true, that there were those among them that thought that they were wise. Now, it's an interesting word for thinking here. It's not the word we'll find later on in this section, logizomai, which means to think objectively. It is the word dakeo, which ought to be translated more like seems or appears, and it has the idea of thinking without foundation, thought without evidence, thought without fact. If any man among you seems to think for himself that he is wise or seems to himself to be wise or has the opinion of himself that he is wise, and this is typical of arrogant believers to think without evidence, think apart from the facts, and uh, think that he is wise in this age. See, that's what Paul is talking about, not wisdom per se, because Scripture has much to say about wisdom. But wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, putting the Word of God first. Wisdom does not begin with man and human experience. So Paul is, is once again returning to the contrast between human wisdom and divine wisdom. And in human wisdom... On the basis of human wisdom, divine wisdom appears to be foolishness because in divine wisdom, the emphasis is on God and God doing everything and man doing nothing. It's based on understanding who and what we are, and that is that we are nothing in the sight of God, that we can do nothing of value. That doesn't mean we're not important because every individual is is created in the image of God. This morning we sang the hymn, uh, at the cross, and there's a line in there about God's grace. What would God think of such a, and I think in our hymnal they have uh, edited the words, such a one as I. 
Yet when Isaac Watts penned that hymn, the word that he chose was such a worm as I. And so what happened in the, oh, in our psychobabble uh, evangelical culture, there was a reaction to worm theology. Oh, we're going to give people a bad self-image if they're saying they're such a worm as I. See, God, God loves you. Yeah, but God knows you're a sinner and you're worthless because you're a sinner, not be, but because you're created in the image and likeness of God, you have value, but not inherent value. It's been corrupted by the sin nature. So once again, we see how modern psychobabble terminology is uh, changing even the uh, great hymns uh, of the faith. We have to operate on divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint, which means we have to operate on a system that focuses not on who we are or what we've accomplished or what our talents are, but on a system of thought called grace that emphasizes what God has done and that God has done it all and we don't earn it and we don't merit it. It emphasizes humility. That's the last part where Paul says, let him become foolish that he may become wise. Let him become foolish doesn't mean acting like an idiot or embarrassing yourself in public. Uh, one time I saw a guy walking down the street wearing one of those sandwich placards, and it said, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. Whose fool are you? Well, this guy had a long beard and long hair and probably hadn't had a bath in a long time. And just shows that most people don't know how to interpret the Word of God. What Paul is saying here is that let him become foolish, that is, in the eyes of human viewpoint standards. Human viewpoint standards... Uh, emphasize, uh, when they emphasize humility, it's a pseudo-humility of simple self-effacement that is grounded in arrogance. I'm going to be humble so that everybody will be impressed. And it's just a re- reverse reversal of the priorities of Scripture. The emphasis in Paul here is there must be genuine humility. You have to have genuine humility to understand grace. You have to have genuine humility to be teachable. You have to have genuine humility and teachability to be able to grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that if you don't dump the human viewpoint in your soul, you will never get past self-absorption and arrogance. You'll never get past self-deception, and you'll never make it anywhere in the spiritual life. And then he goes on in verse 19 to say, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. All of your human viewpoint thinking, all of the wonderful things that, that Aristotle wrote and that Plato wrote and that, that the uh, Stoics believe and all of that, uh, the human erudition that you're so impressed with, Corinthians, that's nothing as far as God is concerned. That's all foolishness because it doesn't start or end with God. And then he quotes the Old Testament, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. He understands human wisdom, and he is going to destroy it through the wisdom of the Scriptures. And then in verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. They are emptiness. The word translated useless is matayas, which means vanity. It is All that human viewpoint thinking, no matter how impressive it may be in terms of intellectual erudition, it's meaningless as far as the spiritual life goes and as far as spiritual growth goes. And then starting in verse 21, we get to the third hindrance, which we'll have to wait until next time. Wait a minute. I think 
we'll uh, now we'll cover it right now. Just take a couple of minutes. The wrong perspective or lack of grace orientation. Verse 21. They say, "Let no one." Paul says, "Let no one boast in men." See, that's emphasis once again on human ability and human strength and a failure to appreciate grace orientation. This is the problem with every single human viewpoint system of spirituality. And then Paul comes back in his conclusion to remind them of everything they've been given in positional truth. All things belong to you. He goes back to the fact that they've been given uh They've been blessed with all spiritual blessings, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. They have been given uh, a vast array of spiritual assets to enable them to face and handle any situation or difficulty in life. And he gives them two categories of examples in verse 22. He mentions, first of all, their teachers, God's spiritual provision for them in terms of those who could accurately teach the word, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. And then he talks about the world, life, or death. He has another group of three, and these are examples uh, in the physical world and related to God's provision of sustenance or physical life support grace. In the world, he provides for them in life, and he provides for them in death, or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. God has supplied everything you need, both for your spiritual life as well as for your physical life. And then in verse 23, he states, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Well, if you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God, then you belong to God. That's the logic. And so his point is that if you as a believer belong to God, then that should change the way you think, that should change what you do, and that should have an impact because you realize that eventually God is going to evaluate you at the judgment seat of Christ so that every decision you make today is going to impact what you will be and where you will be in eternity. And so he brings that home to them. And then he is going to apply that to the divisiveness and the personality cults that have developed in the congregation, and that begins in verse 1 of the next chapter. Unfortunately, there shouldn't be a chapter break there because verse 1 of the next chapter is just the application of what he has just said, but we'll wait to next time to take that up with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this morning to be reminded of all that we have in Christ, all that you have provided for us, that our relationship with you, both in terms of our eternal salvation and our day-to-day walk, is based not on who we are, what we've done, what we've experienced, but ultimately based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. Father, we pray, especially this morning, that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says all you need to do to have eternal life is to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. At that instant that you believe, you are adopted into the royal family of God. You receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You're justified, reconciled, redeemed, and a host of other things that happen simultaneously and instantaneously when you put your faith alone in Christ alone. The issue for you this morning, if you have never accepted Christ, is what do you think about Jesus Christ? If you are a believer, the issue is your relationship to the Holy Spirit. 
and your understanding of spiritual growth and spiritual advance and how much of a priority that is in your life. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. Pray that you'd help us to uh, apply these things on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.